Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good morning, church. Good to see you. Um, if I've not met you, my name is Aaron. I'm the lead pastor of our church, and we've got a few special guests in the house that we want to acknowledge. Uh, first are Pastor Bland and Teresa. They're church planners that moved to Boston uh, over a decade ago. They started Coa Brookline, and through Coa Brookline were many, many church plants. You existed at because they moved up here and gave their life to sacrifice. So can you take a moment to honor them and thank them for coming? And we also want to honor my mom and dad. Thanks for coming up, taking care of the kids this week so we can go on a little bit of a work trip and a little bit of a rest trip too. Uh, And I wouldn't be here without you. So thank you, mom and dad, for your contribution to my life. (laughs) Um, But as we jump into today's text, I just want to warn you, this is an odd text. I've been studying it for two weeks now. And I'm like, God, what are you going to pull out of a conflict between a dude named Laban and a guy named Jacob? Like, what are you going to do here? And I don't know. So we're just going to close in prayer. And then we're going to, and I'm just kidding. But it is challenging this week. Uh, But this week's topic is peacemaking. Uh, We're going to look at five G's of peacemaking. There's this great book that our uh, pastoral track is going through called Peacemaking. There's several principles that we're going to pour out from that book. And I want you to think about all of us exist around conflict. You've got conflict in your own desires about what is good, moral, and right. You've got conflict with your family, conflict with coworkers, conflict with spouse. If you've got kids, you know you've got conflict in the house, okay? Conflict everywhere. And we want to know today from this text is how does God want us to navigate conflict, What are right principles to do this? And so there are five G's we're going to walk through together to see what God would want us to see. And the reason is because of this. I just want to share this brief story. Um, I've been in full-time ministry for about 12 years, and this is one of the most saddest stories when it comes to conflict. One night I was called um, to go to the hospital to visit uh, someone from our church that was passing away. So this was uh, when I was a pastor in North Carolina. I get there and all the family's been gathered and they're calling me in to pray with the family. And I'm praying with the family and there's aunts and uncles and cousins and we've been praying for it together. And then all of a sudden the woman just comes into the room that none of us are really that familiar with from the staff. And we're trying to know if she's supposed to be here or not. And then she tells us that she's the ex-wife of this man who's passing away. And she kind of moves past us and she goes right over to him and she is weeping and she's apologizing for everything that's happened in their marriage, in their life. She's apologizing for not talking to him for over a decade. And while she's doing that, this gentleman that's been a part of our church, he, he passes away. And there's so much grief in her heart knowing that she has left unresolved conflict on the table for years. It served as a poison in her heart in his heart, and they were never able to resolve that conflict. And what we're talking about today, guys, is that all of us may have unresolved conflict with family, with friends, with coworkers. And how does God want us to deal with it so that we don't have unresolved conflict that poisons your heart, your relationships, your loved ones? Does that make sense? So here's the first thing I want you to see here. How do we peacemake? First thing I want you to see is we want to seek to glorify God. We want to glorify God. It's very simple. 
point, and I want to pick up this uh, from Genesis chapter 30, and we're going to start in the midst of this conflict between two guys, Laban and Jacob. So here's Genesis 30, verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, hey, send me away that I might go to my own home and country, because he's not where he used to live in Canaan right now. He says, give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go for you know the service that I have given to you. Now, guys, at this point in the story that Jacob has worked for his father-in-law Laban for 14 years. Guys, let me be honest with you. I love my dad. I love my father-in-law. But y'all, 14 years of serving your father-in-law, I'd be done too. I'd be ready. Send me home. Pack me out. I'm I'm done. I want to get out of here. But especially though for Jacob, given the conflict and tension that's been growing with his father-in-law for 14 years. Laban has lied to him, cheated him, stolen from him, and mistreated Jacob time and time again. And so in this text, we're learning, Jacob's had enough. He's like, send me away. I'm done. Like, let me go home. Because he's seeking to bring some needed space and some needed peace and resolution to their relationship. So it's in this moment that we actually see Jacob seeking to employ the first G of peacemaking, which is to glorify God in the conflict. Now, listen, we've got to use our imagination here, but I imagine that Jacob asks himself the same question that all of us should ask ourselves when we're faced with a conflict with someone. And here's that question. How can I honor God in this situation? Guys, every time you have conflict with someone, that's the question you need to ask yourself. How can I honor God in this situation? How can I both speak the truth, but then do it in love in a way that brings honor to God, respect to the other person, and that facilitates peace in the relationship? Guys, we're going to have about 1,467 slides. Bland told me he was coming, and he's like, bro, give me one of those, that sermon that just has 1,000 slides. So, Bland, this is for you, buddy. Just kidding. That's not true at all. Um, But guys, lots of like pictures this week. There's lots of practical things I want to give you because I want us to practically obey this sermon. So you might not be able to jot it all down, but get your phone out, take pictures, and don't get on the internet, okay? Here we go. And so that's what Jacob does here, at least at first. He's seeking to speak the truth, make his needs known. He's trying to honor God, so he's not fleeing in this moment. He's saying, Laban, I've served you well. It's time for me to leave. He's seeking to do this at first, and we're going to find out that it's a struggle a little bit later. And this is, though, what we should do in our conflicts as well. So Jacob approaches Laban in verse 25 in such a great way, guys. This is just practical for you. He's calm. He's kind. He's clear in his confrontation with Laban, something that we're trying to teach my kids often. If you know my kids, uh, they're very verbal, and they want to fly off the handle sometimes. So I'm like, hey, did you say that calmly, clearly, and kindly? And they're like, no, daddy. I'm like, neither did I. I'm sorry. And we're working on that in our home. And so uh, Jacob respectfully uh, requests to conclude his employment with Laban in this text and to be sent back to Jacob's home in Canaan. Now, in this moment, guys, Jacob could have fought Laban, like literally just fought him for everything that Laban has done to him. He could have fled from Laban. But Jacob is choosing in this moment, trying to find a way to peace. And so he has a confrontation. Guys, many of us in this church, especially our generation, we don't want to have hard conversations. We'd rather just flee, leave the city, get a new roommate, break up with that person, get a new job just to avoid conflict. And in this passage, we see Jacob trying to glorify God by having the hard conversation, not fighting, not fleeing, but finding a way to bring peace. 
And this is what we know truly what Jesus has done. God didn't just abandon us in our sin and our conflict with him. God came to us in love and grace, put on flesh, met us in our sin, called us out, but then called us into him. And church, this is the life that we are to live in our conflicts as well. So that's the first sublist of peacemaking steps I want you to see. Let me just go over that again with you. When you're in conflict with someone, guys, we got to think, how can I glorify God in this situation? You got to ask yourself, how can I both speak the truth, do it in love that brings honor to God, respect to the other person, and that facilitates peace in this relationship? How can I be calm and kind and clear in the hard conversations? And then lastly, how do I not fight or flee, but how do I find a way to bring peace in this relationship? So then Laban responds in verse 27 and 28. Essentially though, by begging Jacob to stay, here's what he says. He says, I have learned by divination, which is an ancient pagan practice, by the way, we don't want to practice that, that the Lord has blessed me because of you, he says. So he's like, name your wages. Literally, Jacob, name your price, he says, and I'm gonna give it. Just stay here because God's blessing me because of you. Now guys, this is an interesting moment because Jacob is seeking to conclude his relationship with Laban, but Laban wants to continue it. So again, these two find themselves in conflict here. Laban learns through a demonic practice that God is blessing him because of Jacob's relationship with God. And so he wants to keep Jacob working for him so he can have an advantage. And so he tries to make this deal with Jacob, which we learn is gonna be a slimy deal. He's like, Jacob, name your wage. I'll do anything. I'll give it to you if you'll keep working for me. So Jacob thinks in this moment, and I'm wondering if he's thinking, how do I glorify God in this moment? And then he works towards a compromise with Laban, which is a great tactic for us, church, to learn how to employ in conflict is how do we make a compromise where two parties make both of their needs known and in a gracious way, we walk a middle road of compromise. And so Jacob and Laban start down this road of compromise in verse 29, when Jacob says this, he says, you yourself know how I've served you and how your livestock have fared well with me. Now, for you had little before I came and it increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now I should provide for, but now when should I provide for my own household also? So again, he's making his needs known. Hey, Laban, I, I need to have some inheritance for my own family and not just serve you. I need to go somewhere else. So Laban says in verse 21, hey, what, what should I give you? What do you want? And Jacob says, you shall not give me anything. However, if you do this thing for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Then he lays out the compromise that works well for them both. Jacob says, let me pass through all of your flock today and let me remove every speckled and spotted sheep and let me, let me take every black lamb and every spotted and speckled among the goats and those should be my wages. So my honesty will answer me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and not spotted among the goats and the black among the lambs, if they're found with me, man, it's gonna be counted as stolen. I'm gonna keep my word. And so Laban looks at this deal and says, good, let it be as you have said. Guys, I love what Jacob is doing here. He's trying to glorify God by creating a win-win scenario for Laban and himself. Again, it's a great strategy that we can employ when we navigate conflict in a God-glorifying way. Laban wants him to stay and keep working for him, but Jacob wants to leave and build an inheritance for his family. So Jacob, in this moment, creates a win-win compromise. He'll pasture Laban's flock to help him out, 
but as he does, he'll take the unwanted spotted and speckled animals for himself. Since Laban really doesn't want those anyway. Guys, this is so wise and so good for you and I to take home. Jacob is genuinely creating a win-win situation for both of them. Guys, that's what we need to do in a lot of our relationships. Often, when we get in conflict, we just want the other person to bow down to our rightness. Let me just unpack my marriage for here for a second, publicly for all of us. Often when I'm thinking in a conflict with Emily, I'm not thinking, hmm, how can I help Emily win? I'm thinking, I'm right. I gotta convince this woman that I'm right. So I guess I gotta bring up my list of reasons and my, my research and my data of how I'm right. And my goal is not a win-win situation. It's how can I convince you that my page is the right page? Because Emily's often like, we gotta be on the same page. I'm like, yeah, just get on page 57. That's where I'm at. Like, and that's not a good way. How do we create win-win situations where both people are glorifying God, needs are being known, and respect is happening? It's a very practical principle that we see here in this text. So Jacob does this, and we think it's going to go well until Laban goes sideways. And he's going to add further conflict between them because he's going to lie and deceive Jacob Again, and you remember that happened the first time with the two wives and, hey, I'm going to give you one to marry. And then all of a sudden it was the other one. That's kind of what's going to happen here. See what I mean in verse 35. So later that day, Laban does this. He goes to his flock and he removes all of the male goats that were striped and spotted. This is a jerk move, okay? He takes all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on them, every land that was black, and he put them in charge of his sons away from Jacob. And then he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastored the rest of Laban's flock. This is just a jerk move. This is like an awful move here that Laban's doing. Right after he makes this compromise with Jacob, he goes and takes out all the spotted and speckled animals that he promised to give Jacob and he go hides them. And then the joker just runs away. This is the ultimate turd move. (laughs) Like you don't do this in your relationships. And that's exactly what Laban does. But this scene, guys, should cause us to pause and ask yourself a key question when it comes to conflict. What should we do when someone lies to us or seeks to bring harm to us in some way? What is the godly way to respond when someone does to us something similar that Laban did to Jacob? Guys, we should respond like Jacob does in this section. Let me tell you what he does. We see him respond with wisdom and not retaliate with wickedness. Guys, that's just a good one-liner for you to take away. Respond with wisdom and don't retaliate with wickedness. Is that not what Christ did for us? When we sinned against God, all of his good moral laws for humanity, when we rebelled against him, did he just retaliate? And every time we sin, God just comes and takes our life or he just instantly punishes us? No, God responds in wisdom and love and, and grace. He calls us out. He calls us into a relationship. He sent his son to die in our place. Let's model peacemaking like God and respond with wisdom and not with wickedness. Guys, Jacob doesn't respond with the spirit of revenge where he tries to get even with Laban. No, he responds with the spirit of wisdom where he trusts God to do two things. Number one, he trusts God to take care of him. And number two, Jacob trusts God to bring justice to the situation, which we'll see. And that's exactly what happens Next, let me read to you, verse 37. Then Jacob took some fresh sticks of poplar and almond and 
plane trees. And he peeled the white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. By the way, this is sort of like a weird animal mating ritual. We won't unpack it too much, but let me just keep reading here, okay? Verse 38. He then sets the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in their troughs, which is the watering place where the flocks would come and drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of these sticks so that the flocks would be, uh, would be brought forth, striped, speckled, and spotted offspring. And so Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the stripe and all the black and the flock of Laban. And he put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs uh, before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But the feebler of the flock, he did not lay them in front of them. So the feebler would be Laban's, the stronger would be Jacob's. Thus this man increased greatly, had large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, and donkeys. So let me unpack that. Jacob is genius here. If he can't have the spotted and speckled animals because Laban hid him from him, then he'll just breed for them himself. Smart. So he organizes the flock in such a way that one color of the strongest flock would breed with another color of that strongest part of the flock, thus creating strongest and spotted speckled animals. Brilliant. But here's what we're learning here. I'm not just teaching you mating rituals among animals. That would be a really weird Sunday. And Bland's on our advisory board. I might not come back next week if he fires me on that. But it's not about breeding. This is about blessing. The blessing of what happens when you respond in wisdom when there's conflict rather than retaliating in wickedness. Church, listen, when you choose to trust God and respond in godly ways, we'll see that God will move and bring blessing and justice to the situation. And that's exactly what we see happen with Jacob. God is bringing blessing and justice. And church, you can trust that God will do the same to you when you've been hurt and harmed. Trust him in that. Respond godly. God will continue to bring blessing and justice. Now, at this point, unfortunately, Laban's son starts spreading some lies about Jacob in verse 1 of chapter 31, that Jacob has taken what was Laban's and has made himself rich because he didn't know about this mating ritual, which is, of course, not true. He's not stealing. Jacob's not. So God speaks out in verse 3, and he says this to Jacob. He says this, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Now, guys, I'm going to be honest. There are times, there are times, it's rare, but there are times when the best way to live at peace with another is to set some boundaries and to seek to live at peace from a distance. That's not how you should start out the conflict, but sometimes in some cases that has to happen. If it does, that doesn't mean that you write a person off, but it may mean that you draw up some healthy boundaries for the relationship. And in this case, Laban has gotten so toxic and so destructive in his relationship with Jacob that God tells Jacob to return to Canaan. Guys, this type of distance is permissible when there's violence, there's abuse, there's neglect, there's destructive and unrepentant sin in play. And that's what we see happening here from Laban to Jacob. Jacob is even trying to take some of the steps that Jesus gives us in Matthew 18 when conflict is present. But Laban has refused to repent and even has doubled down on his efforts to bring harm to Jacob. And so God in his grace is releasing Jacob from this destructive relationship so that he can pursue peace with him from afar. So at this point in the story, 
is that we see the second G of peacemaking come into play. And that's what we'll call this. We'll call it gaining a godly perspective. Gaining a godly perspective. Now, Jacob now takes some time to reflect on this growing conflict with Laban. Now, Jacob's name is being, um, uh, his reputation is kind of being marred around the land. It's not going well. Jacob has stolen those earlier flock from him and things are just getting ugly with them. And he realizes, Jacob does, he realizes that God has actually been at work in four areas to bring Jacob peace. Jacob pauses to gain a a godly perspective in church. That's what we need to do. A lot of us are very strong personalities. Many of us are type A. And when a conflict happens, we want to go immediately run to it and give them our peace of mind and tell them exactly how they should think about an issue. But Jacob, rather than doing that, he takes time to pause and he gains a godly perspective on what is happening and how God is at work. Let me show you the first one. The first one that he recognizes is that God's presence is with you. We see that verse four and five. It says, so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field where his flock was, those are his wives. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Notice what he does in the conflict. He's thinking, where is God at? Not where are my possessions? What's going wrong with me? But where is God at work in this conflict? That's what brings him peace. That's what brings Jacob clarity. The first thing that Jacob brings to mind is the fact that God is with him. It's a simple, but has profound implications. He's comforted by the fact that God sees the injustice done to him because God is right there with him. And so he's strengthened by this fact, knowing that God is sovereign over this conflict and God's gonna work it out for Jacob's good as we've seen all through the story in Genesis. So church, when you're in conflict, remember God's presence is with you. And I want you to remember that everything that happens to you, God promises to work it out for good. Why? Because he's with you. That's what Jacob sees. The second area where God's at work is that God's protection is with you. We see this in verse six and seven, God's protection. He says, you know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. Now listen, that's what you and I do. When we're telling someone what's been happening to us, we just blast the other person, do we not? They did this to me, they did that to me. We get in DNA and CGs and we're like, I can't believe my coworker. And we just send them on high blast. We don't ever do the last part. We don't consider what is God doing though? And I love what he says here, but God did not permit him to harm me. Now, what I find interesting here, guys, is that Jacob does not consider what Laban has done to him as harm. I would have though. I would have been super upset. Probably you would too. Laban has lied, cheated, stolen, mistreated Jacob. But Jacob doesn't see it as a setback, as harm. Jacob sees it as a setup. Something that God's gonna do in the midst of it. Listen, what Laban meant for evil... God turned it for his good. Jacob got more lambs and more sheep and more goats and more wealth. God was blessing him in the midst of that. I'm not saying God's gonna give you a Ferrari or a house or what we call grass that somewhere is in our city that people can have. Not saying you're gonna get that, but I am saying that God can take what the enemy meant for evil and he can turn it for good, which we're gonna see more and more in Genesis And Christian, that is often how God will protect you in conflict. Listen, God may not keep you from the emotional hurt 
It's that he will keep you from any harm that it will end up in. That God will keep that conflict working for your good. That's what I want you to see in this passage. It's not gonna keep you from it, but he'll keep working it for your good. A third area where he's at work is that God's provision is with you. Provision. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, verse eight, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the stripes uh, shall be your wages, then all the spot, all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and he's given it to me. Guys, God promises to those who are deeply harmed in conflict, he promises them the hope of Romans 12, which says this, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not overcome, do not, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Guys, what we're learning here is that God promises to bring both justice and blessing to your conflicts if you seek to honor God in them. So Christian, listen, some of you might have been really, really hurt by some conflict in your life, something in your past. And this text is telling us that you can trust that God will bring justice and healing and blessing with you just like he did with Jacob. And so this trust can set your heart free from anger and bitterness that it may be feeling that you thought that your offender may got away with something. Romans 12 tells us that, no, God is the avenger. He's gonna go bring justice from whatever wronged you, whatever happened to you. That justice is gonna be paid for on the cross for that person or that person, God will bring that justice. And so you can trust that God will provide for you in the midst of that conflict. Because guys, if we're not honest, like if we're honest, like is that not why we have conflict? Because we feel like something's been taken from us and so we gotta get it back. Whether it was our dignity, whether you said a hurtful comment to me and I need to go get it back and I need to tell you, hey, don't treat me like that because you stole away how I felt. And I'm more important than that or you can't treat me like that. And what we're learning is that yes, we can confront, but we're learning that whatever is taken God will restore. Whatever hurt happened, God can bring justice. God will provide. Then fourthly, God is at work in your conflict and that God will guide you through it as you listen to his word. Guys, in verse 10 and 11, uh, 10 through 13, actually, uh, God speaks to Jacob in another dream and God is guiding him in how to breed the animals in order to provide for him. Then God reminds Jacob in those verses that God's with him, that God will care for him, and that God leads him to move back to Canaan to pursue peace from afar. And church, it's in this section that we are reminded that God speaks to us in conflict. It may not be through a dream like Jacob, but God speaks to you in your conflict. God speaks through his spirit, according to his word, to bring us hope and healing in the midst of conflict. And guys, here's a few verses that just talk about conflict, how God speaks to you. We learn in Matthew 18, what steps we need to take when others sin against us. God is speaking, he's guiding. Guys, we learn in Romans 12, how to pursue peace with others and through reconciliation and not retaliation. Guys, in 2 Corinthians 5, we learn that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation because of how Jesus has reconciled to God, us to God through the cross. Now we can help reconcile others to God and each other. Guys, therefore our lives should be filled with seeking to Look at God's word and apply it in our conflicts. God's word is speaking to us. Are you listening? Are you listening? Are you following God's word? God is speaking to you in the midst of your 
conflict. Last couple things here. Number three, we got to get the log out of your own eye. That's the next G. This is a tough one, okay? When you're in a conflict, before you go to the other person, get the log out of your own eye. This is a teaching that comes right from Jesus. And we see this very clearly what should have happened in this passage. Let me show you how not to do it according to Laban, okay? So Jacob arose. Remember, God told him to go back to Canaan. Verse 17, Jacob arose and he set his sons and his wives on some camels. And he drove all his livestock out and all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired. And he went to the land of Canaan to his father, Isaac, verse 22. When it was told to Laban though, on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with them and he pursued Jacob for seven days and followed close after him to the hill country of Gilead, verse 25. Then Laban overtook Jacob and Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? There's, there's no specking out. There's no get the log out of your eye. Laban is angry. What have you done? You have tricked me. You have driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. He's, he's mad, verse 27. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with, with myrrh and songs and tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons? He's, he's gaslighting him here. Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and, and daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. Now, if this was me, I'd be like, hold on just a minute, Laban. Like, how dare you talk to me like that? Because guys, again, if this is me, guys, after everything I've been through with this joker for 20 years, I would have blasted him. It's not godly, just honest. <laughs> in fact, this is what Jacob does here in a moment. He does blast him. Because if this was me, I would have flown off the handle. Why? Because of the hypocrisy of Laban. I'd be like, what you mean? I've done foolishly, Laban. You're the one that gave me both your daughters in a immoral way. You're the one who's lied to me and stolen to me. How dare you say, what have I done? How about you consider all the things that you've done wrong? It's in this moment that Laban would have done well to apply that third G of peacemaking, which is get the log out of your own eye first before you seek to remove the speck of sin in someone else's, <clears throat> in someone else's eye. In fact, guys, this is such an important part of peacemaking and conflict that I want to give you some really quick practical steps on how to take the log out of your eye first before you go call somebody else out. And again, this is coming from Ken Sandy's book called Peacemaking. You take a snapshot of this, we're going to race through these together. So just picture and we'll move, okay? The first step when you're going to go confront someone is to ask the question, how have I specifically contributed to the conflict in this relationship? Don't think about how hurt you are which is okay in a moment to talk about. Don't think about that first. Think about how have I contributed? Ask yourself, have I had a critical, a negative, an overly sensitive attitude even that has contributed to this conflict? So think about what have you done to contribute? Think about it and be specific. Maybe jot those down before you go to the person. Then you should look for two kinds of logs that might be in your eye. Number one, look at the log of sinful words. Did you say anything? Or do you say it with a harsh or disrespectful tone to someone that stirred up some conflict? The second log, look at your sinful actions. Did you do something or did you passively not do something that you said you would do that is added to this conflict? Look for the logs before you go for someone else. So before talking to someone else about their wrongs and with God's help, you should examine your heart by asking these questions. Here's what Ken says. Am I guilty of reckless words? Falsehood, gossip, slander, 
or any worthless talk, I got to own it. Have I tried to control or manipulate others with my words or actions? You got to own it. Have I kept my word? Have I fulfilled all my agreed upon responsibilities? If I told my wife, hey, I'm going to take out the trash, and then she's frustrated at me later for taking out the trash, I can't be like, I- I'm just so busy. I've got jury duty. Life is so hard. Like, no, I- you're right. I told you I would take it out, and I didn't. I'm sorry. That's not a real life example, but there's lots of real life examples I have like that. Okay, you just can't make excuses, okay? Another question is, have I abused my authority? Maybe you're a parent and you spoke harshly to your child. Maybe at work you're a supervisor and you've spoken ungodly ways or you've been rude or disrespectful. You've interrupted your coworkers constantly, belittling them. You've abused your authority. How can you own that? Have you respected those in authority over you? Have I treated others the way that I would be treated? And lastly, am I being motivated in this conflict by a lust of the flesh, by some pride, by a love of money, by a fear of others, or comfort that maybe is contributing to this conflict? Then, then when I've seen I've sinned, I will ask God to help me with the following. Number one is repent. Guys, you got to acknowledge the sin. You got to turn away from it and turn to Christ for two things, forgiveness and for change. And then you go to the person, not to call him out first, but to own where you sin. These are the eight A's of confession. This is really, really helpful. If you want to be married a long time, you want to have friends for a long time, get used to these eight A's. Tat them on your back, on your arm, whatever it is, get used to this. This is how we should confess. Number one, you go to the person or whoever and you address everyone that you've affected with your sin. Address all of them. Individually, whether it was some corporate thing, maybe it's an email, whatever the case, you address them. Number two, you avoid making excuses. Don't talk about how tired you were, how hard your life is. Understand that that may be true, but try to avoid excuses. Talk about how you have harmed them. Number three, admit specifically what you did wrong, which is the opposite of Laban. Didn't admit anything. Admit specifically practically what you did wrong. Number four, acknowledge how you have hurt others. Five, accept the consequences of your actions. Six, alter my attitudes and behavior in the future and explain how you will seek to do so. Seven, then you ask for forgiveness. And then eight, this is important, you got to allow time. Guys, some of us, when we apologize, we're mad that they won't forgive us fast enough. I said, I'm sorry. Why are you still upset with me? You got to allow time. Like you can't just expect them to turn around and just be like fine with the way you've harmed them. You've got to allow some time when you've deeply disappointed, hurt, or wronged someone, they may te- need some time to process their emotions. And then they can come to a point of forgiveness. And then you seek to, by God's grace, change your attitudes and behavior to let God help you. That is what Laban should have done. Get the log out of his own eye, and then he goes to Jacob. Now guys, it's in this moment in this story that Jacob himself could have employed the fourth G of peacemaking, which is to gently restore. There is no gently restoring that's about to happen. Jacob has had pent up anger for two decades. When I get angry for two days, I'm a mess. I can't imagine 20 years. And Jacob does not gently restore Laban. He goes off. I can't wait. Let's talk about it. Gently restore. Verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated, I love that, berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods and have you found any of your household goods? Meaning you think I've stolen from you. Where are they? What has happened? What wrong did I do? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. 
Then he says this, verse 38, these 20 years I have been with you, like he is just about to bring it all up. 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats, they've not miscarried and I've not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts at one time, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself for my hand, uh, for from my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, he brings up this episode. There I was by day and the heat consumed me and I was there in the cold by night and my sled fed, fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I've served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock and you've changed my wages 10 times. Dude is losing his mind. I love it. Verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction though and the labor of my hands and he rebuked you last night, which God did indeed speak to Laban. Mercy. Jacob just unloads his pent up anger for 20 years. That's not what you should do. That's not how you gently restore in conflict. When you've got something against someone like Jacob has against Laban, that's not how you do it. In fact, that's not what Christ did with you. Before you had a relationship with Jesus, did Jesus come and dump all of everything you've ever done on you? No, he, he began to slowly help you see how you've fallen short of God's standards. And as he calls you out, like we've been saying, he calls you in for forgiveness, love, and change. So yes, we should call people out, but we should do it in a particular way that's not the way Jacob calls out Laban. Guys, when we have to call out someone who sinned against us, here's what we should be asking ourselves. Ask this question to yourself. How can I lovingly serve this person by helping them take responsibility for the contribution that they had to this conflict. And notice the key word of how can I lovingly serve them? We're at odds, we're in conflict with this person, your marriage, your friend, whatever it is, how can you serve them by helping them maybe see if they don't see quite yet how they've contributed? Because I just wanna give you a quick note here. Even before you talk to someone, it may be appropriate that you overlook certain offenses. Like you don't have to call out everybody for everything. As a general rule, an offense should be overlooked if you can answer no to all of the following questions, Ken Sandy tells us. He says, if the, is the offense seriously dishonoring to God? If not, maybe consider overlooking it. Let love cover the multitude of your offense. We can ask the question, has it permanently damaged a relationship? If not, maybe we can overlook it. Is it seriously hurting other people? And if it's seriously hurting the offender himself. You could ask those questions, and if it's a no, then maybe you can apply this principle of Proverbs 19.11 and let the multitude of love cover that sin, and you can overlook the offense and give grace to the person. But if you can't, they sinned against you, they've harmed, they're hurting themselves, they're hurting others, then you can prepare to gently restore others in this way. So here's what you need to do. If you got to confront someone today, here's a few steps. Number one, pray for humility and wisdom. You got to pray first, guys. Sometimes people are going through really, really tough things in your life, in their life. And when you come and just blast them, it's hard for them to process because they're acting out of some of the challenges they've been facing. So pray and seek wisdom. God, how would you want me to confront this person? Number two, plan your words carefully. Think about how you would we want to be confronted. Plan your words carefully. What would you say that would be gracious and truthful? Guys, anticipate likely reactions and 
plan appropriate responses. This person, you don't know how they're going to react. And so you might want to plan if, if it goes south, what should I say? If they dismiss it, what should I say? If they like don't want to talk anymore, what should I say? Maybe we can anticipate some of their reactions and plan appropriate responses of grace and truth. Guys, we should definitely choose the right place and time talking to a person. I was joking with um, our, our elder track guys. And sometimes it's really funny. I know sometimes I may not get to uh, see you guys often, but sometimes we'll have a guest teacher, it be myself. And uh, you might want to confront me for something right before I go and preach. That might not be the best time or one of our guest teachers right before we preach. Do it afterwards. Do it on Tuesday. It's really great because Monday's kind of preacher blues. And then Tuesday, pick your time and how it works in your life. If there's a conflict and your spouse gets home, your roommate gets home, and they're just tired, it's not the time to put on the guns and be like, now I'm going to blast them. Think about how they're doing. How can you confront them in a way that's wise? Another thing here, we need to assume the best of the other person until you have the facts that tell you otherwise. Assume the best. Don't think that their motive is always evil against you. There may be a huge misunderstanding. Assume the best. Then you got to listen carefully. You got to confront and then be quiet. Listen carefully to what they have to say. Speak only to build others up, not tear them down. Maybe even ask them for feedback. Hey, do you agree with what I'm saying here? Like, do you, what are your thoughts about what I'm saying? Do you agree, disagree? Where would you want to have pushback? And then listen. And then last, recognize your limits. Recognize your limits. Guys, you are not the agent of change. You may be an instrument in God's hands to bring change in someone's life, but recognize that you cannot change anybody. The power of the Holy Spirit through you can so know that even your confrontation may have to happen once or twice, or you might have to bring a friend who can help you that could be a mediator. Guys, take time and trust God in this way. And let's make sure that we restore gently and not aggressively like Jacob. The last thing here, last G is go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. Here's how the passage ends, verse 51. Then Laban said to Jacob, they just screamed at each other. It's an awkward scene. And he says, see this heap and the pillar, which I have set between you and me, this heap is going to be a witness for us. And the pillar is going to be a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you. And you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do me harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father should judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and he called his king, kinsmen to come and eat bread. And they together in this moment of peace, they eat the bread and spent the night all together in the hill country. Guys, this passage is pointing us to the gospel in a very beautiful way. Notice the imagery that's brought out that Laban says. He says, notice this heap, this pillar. Notice this sacrifice. Guys, this pillar is sort of this monument that they're both remembering and saying, hey, we're gonna make an agreement here. We're going to not bring each other harm. We're going to bring peace here. We're going to put a pillar, a physical sign to say we need to stop the conflict. Guys, this pillar is pointing us to the cross. The only way that real conflict can bring peace in our lives if we see how God has brought us peace in our conflict with him. Guys, as Christians, we are the most forgiven people on the planet. Therefore, we should be the most forgiving people in the world. And this pillar is reminding us that the only thing that can bring peace with each other is if we're reminded about how badly we sinned against God and how deeply he came and loved us and died in our place. And if he can bridge that massive gap, then over time, I can bridge the gap of my pain and hurt with someone too.
This pillar, which is a moment for them to remember peace, this pillar points us to the cross. And then what happened in this moment between the two? There was a sacrifice. A debt had to be paid for both of their sins. So Jacob gets a sacrifice and he kills this animal and they both feast from it, filling up their desires, their heart, their joy. This sacrifice brought peace. My friends, this is what this passage is really about. It's not just several steps about how you can have better relationships and make peace. It's really about what did Jesus do to bring you peace? You and I have sinned against this God. But in love, he became the sacrifice that Jacob had. He died so that we could have life, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be given the ministry of reconciliation to share that message with others, to have a relationship with God, and to help others when we're in conflict together. Guys, that's what we see here in So when we go and reconcile, guys, we must ask ourselves this question. How can I demonstrate God's forgiveness and God's reconciliation? How can I remember the pillar, the heap of the cross? How can I remember a sacrifice? What did God remind me what you did to me? When I feel so offended about what this person did to me, I've got to remember what I did to you. And then how did you treat me? You were patient. You were loving. You were kind. You were truthful. You called me out. Therefore, because the way you live to me, I've got to live this way to another. That's what I'm called to because they need to see you, God, because they probably sinned against me because they needed something from you that they didn't have or they forgot that they had had. So I've got to remind them of you. So how can I demonstrate genuine forgiveness and reconciliation? And then here's what we do. Once, Once you've confronted, you've already got the log out of your eye, you've confronted, you've had the hard conversation, then here's how you have to be reconciled. There's these four promises of forgiveness that helps you model the gospel. You've got to have these four promises. The first one is that you're going to say to the other person, I'll no longer dwell on this incident anymore. For the passive folks in the room that don't like conflict, this is for you. Often you'll be quick to say, hey, I'm sorry, or I'll forgive you. And then you don't. You just want to be done with the conflict. You don't like the awkward moment. So you say, I'm sorry, but you harbor bitterness in your heart. And then you step back and you don't have a relationship with them close anymore. True reconciliation is when you say, I will no longer dwell on this incident and I'll forgive you and I'll love you. Just like God removed my sin as far as east from the west, I'm gonna try to do that with you. And I'm trying not to dwell on this incident because I wanna be like Christ in this way. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against them. I am terrible at this in my marriage. Emily tells me all the time, Aaron, stop using definitive. Stop saying you always, you never. Emily slays me on this. I will bring an arsenal of wrongs from the past, from like 1875, before we were even born. Like your great granddad did, like I'm just bringing stuff up that's like, should never be brought up. I don't fight clean or well. And Emily reminds me, hey, Christ doesn't bring up all of our sin from the past. It's been wiped clean, forgiven. Let's not bring up past incidents and keep hurting people, building up ammo to keep tearing them down. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. Church, if I can just be honest with you, some of us, I do think we struggle with gossip. We like to share other people's sins with each other. Let me just share that gossip is inverted confession. Inverted confession. Gossip is, I'm going to share your sins with others. Confession is, I'm going to share my sins with God. When you gossip, all you're doing is just inverting confession. And that's what we can't do with other people's sins. That's why DNA group... We've got to keep what's shared there about our conflict, about our sin. We've got to keep it in the DNA group because the person feels safe about what they're going through. They can feel the deep forgiveness rather than the shame of someone else knowing what had happened to them. 
So I will not talk to others about this incident. And then lastly, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder this personal relationship. I'm going to try hard to not back away. There are some cases in abuse. I understand that you need some peace from afar. But as a whole, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. So church, that's a bunch of information. It's two chapters of study, lots of application points here. But here's how I want to end. I want to ask you a very personal question. Church, let me ask, who do you specifically need to make peace with today? Even if you're like, I didn't do anything wrong. They're mad at me. The Bible says that if you know that a brother or sister has something against you, you're actually supposed to go to them as well. Who do you need to make peace with today? Is it a family member? Is it a friend? Old, old roommate? Someone from a while ago? Is it a coworker? Or even... Is it with God that you, you have a positional peace through the cross, Jesus dying for you, but maybe not a practical peace. You, you keep rebelling against him. Or maybe you don't even have a relationship yet with Jesus. And sin is standing in between you two. And you can make peace all of those ways by looking at the cross, seeing what Jesus has done for you, embracing that, and then living out of that. So who do you need to seek peace with today? Church, let us reconcile our conflict with others the way that God has reconciled our conflict with him. He loved us, he pursued us, he sacrificed for us, he forgave us, and he never gives up on us. So church, let us do the same for others, the same way that God did for us. Let's pray.